0: All right, Scott, welcome to Therapy for Dads podcast. It's good to have you on. How are you doing this morning?
1: I'm good, mate. Thanks. Yeah, it is. It's uh, just past 6 a.m. here, so some of my boys are awake. Some of them are still sleeping. 6
0: a.m., okay. And where are you located so the listeners have an idea of where you are?
1: Yeah, I'm in Warwickshire, England, which is just pretty much central England.
0: Central England, okay. And I'm all the way over, for those who've been listening, in Southern California, so there's a bit of a time difference. It's about 10 p.m. my time, 6 a.m. his time, so we're <laughs> we're across the world here.
1: No. I I appreciate that mate I appreciate you having me on to be fair one, yeah. of, the, one of the things that I am um, I sort of say when I talk to, to new dads or e- anybody really but definitely parents is I get up you know I get up at 5am I introduced mm-hmm. that sort of a while ago just to have that little bit of time before everybody else gets up before the noise mm-hmm. and the chaos starts it was just and sometimes that might just be catch up on a program Maybe listen to some music. It may be emails. You know, you might have something to do for work or meditation. Just anything that you can just have that little bit of time before the day starts. Doesn't always work for everybody, yeah. but it works for me. So, yeah, I was already up, mate. So yeah. thanks for having me on.
0: And actually, I could I could totally relate. I also get up early to get things done before the boys wake up. Otherwise, there's not much alone recharge me time it's about 5 a.m usually when i wake up as well 5 five thirty, depending on the night um to have that kind of meditation coffee journal yoga kind of whatever i do in the morning kind of get my day started so i could i could totally relate that that's the sacrifice i make as well to kind of start the day kind of
1: fresh no you definitely i think you definitely need it to be fair i think when i, I struggled with this sort of self-care and looking after mm. yourself and then doing things for yourself. You know, I always found that quite difficult to swallow. Trying to introduce it, I had to sort of reframe it. Just by mm. finding this time for me, I'm better for my children. And that was yeah. the only way. It sounds silly, and you talk to some people, and particularly people that don't have kids. You know, they don't necessarily get it. You've got to do things for yourself. But when, you, when you're trying to prioritize your time, you, you'll always lean more heavy to the kids. You know, we all do. It's natural. And that's mm-hmm. okay. And I think when we think about looking out for ourselves, we, we often think it has to be a big gesture. You, know, you have to go to the gym for an hour, or you have to go out for a meal, or you have to. But we can just do little small things. And yes, an hour in the morning is not necessarily small, but. It's just finding those times that Mm -hmm. when it does get a little bit overwhelming, particularly the last 18 months, Travis, you know, but I talk to parents here that everybody's in the house all the time, you know, and there's been homeschools and people working from home and everything's changed. And it's a lot to sort of try and process even harder to find that time now. So it is just like you said, Mm -hmm. meditation, people think, oh, you've got to meditate for half an hour, you know, or you've got to do it for a long time or it could be just some stretching exercises a little bit of music it's just finding those times you know and that hours what works for me some guys i talk to you know they've got very manual physical jobs and they say scott i need that extra hour sleep you know i I can't Mm. get up early i need to sleep and everything i suggest everything i say travis is just do what works for you you know this this is what works for me but it doesn't work for everybody you know
0: yeah i know you're you're right it's definitely tailored to the individual and their individual context at least in my profession working with you know men particularly it, it is it is kind of a you tailor it to them and what what fits for them but really carving out that space for whatever that recharge time looks like and being intentional but before we get down too far the rabbit trail because we're already we're already pumping how about you just quickly introduce yourself a little bit dad how many kids things
1: like that yeah yeah that was a bit rude I thought we were having a conversation I'm not even introduced myself (laughs) so it's It's uh, okay (laughs) yeah so um I do apologize for that so my name's Scott my wife and I have seven boys eldest is 18 youngest is two and pretty much every couple of years all the way down. When my youngest was born, we had a particularly difficult time. My wife became Mm. quite unwell after he was born and my son was took to the the neonatal unit. Mentally, it strained. You know, it really, really did strain on me to to the point where, I think the only way to describe it, Travis, is I sort of mentally broke. You know, we we talk about Mm. rock bottoms, break points. However you sort of dress it up, I believe everybody has a limit and I just reached mine. And Mm. after sort of going through that process, my wife was very unwell um, and what sort of pushed me that way was i thought i was going to lose her and it got to the point where i apologized that i couldn't keep her alive and i said goodbye that was the moment no where i just pff, i can't do this anymore this is too much i'd already sort of turned my attentions to i've got a baby in the neonatal unit i've got six other boys at home how am i going to do this on my own which is very selfish but you're sort of in survival mode and then there's the mm-hmm. fact that you know, me and my wife met at 16. First day of college, you know, we've been together ever since 23 years now. So this was mm. sort of a couple of years ago. And I'm looking at it, I am ready. I'm not ready to be on my own. I'm not ready for you not to be here anymore. You know, there's so much we've got to do. This isn't fair, you know. And, and in that moment, life's not fair. Nobody ever said it was. But in that moment, I thought this is just not how it's supposed to be. And then wow. she was okay. You know, she was saved, she recovered, she's fine. My son came out of the neonatal unit, he's okay. And life started to go back to normal. And I just sort of realized there was just something not right. Couldn't quite mm-hmm. figure out what it was. And But I knew I was really, really struggling. And I'd been talking to GPs and stuff. And then I went through therapy. And I was sort of already starting the process of therapy when all this happened. Because I'd struggled for a while. I just didn't really know how to articulate it. And mm-hmm. then when I realized that out of all of my boys, three of them, had been really traumatic deliveries, like sort of life and death situation. You know, it wasn't just what happened two years ago, it had been lots of different things. So I started to understand mental health a little bit more. I was quite interested by this point. Somewhat study your enemy. You know, I knew I was experiencing it, I just didn't know enough about it. Mm -hmm. So when I was going through therapy and I looked at these different patterns and I thought, I didn't really know about this. And I Googled it, there wasn't a lot of information. I went to doctors, there wasn't a lot of information. So I heard a man um, called Mark Williams, father's mental health campaigner talk about the effects of parenting and trauma and birth and pregnancies on a father's perspective on his mental health and the things that we don't talk about and it just made everything make sense to us you know it it was as if listening to this man talk he was talking to me you know he was sort of describing Mm. what i'd experienced and i could see things i hadn't even noticed about sort of the transition into parenting and how difficult that is and trying to find your space in the relationship um, because things have changed. You know, I went from being my wife's priority to not anymore. You know, and I quite liked being center of attention. All of a sudden, I wasn't. You don't think about yeah. these things sort of having an impact um, because we don't talk about it. So I set up an Instagram page in November to talk about these sort of things, the mental health. And statistics. that was November of
0: twenty. Yeah, just last November year. November 2020? Yeah. Just last year. Okay. okay, this is all brand new.
1: Yeah, it's all absolutely brand new. I mean, it was only about a year ago that I first sort of, Spoke about what happened. I got Mm. asked to talk to some maternity services and midwives, and I explained what happened because what had actually happened is after the baby was born, took to neonatal unit, my wife became unwell very quickly. And Mm. for three days, I was saying to them, Something's wrong. And they kept Mm. telling me, You don't understand what your wife's been through. She'd had a cesarean section, she had seven babies, it's going to take its toll. You have to listen to the experts. And I said, Well, I am the expert in this woman. I'm the only expert, yeah. you know. We've been together since we were 16, like I said. We've had seven children. I know everything about her. You need to listen to me. And I didn't say it in sort of an arrogant way. I was never rude. I didn't raise my voice. I always tried to conduct myself correctly. But I said, "You're not listening. Something's wrong." And in the end, it was. You know, she had sepsis, and that's what sort of that's how she nearly died. So uh-huh. I thought we've got to look at the fact that you've got to see this family as a together. You know, it's no longer can we just sort of individualise. If 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 it's a family unit that lives together, whether that's mom and mom, dad and dad, mom and dad, whoever it's made up you need to look at both of them because when they go back from the hospital and take baby home that's all they have sometimes travis you know we don't all have big friend groups and big families around us lots of the times particularly with my wife and i you've just got each other so i started working with the the services and integrated it into the instagram to say look let's educate parents properly on the realities of parenting the fact that it's the greatest thing you ever do but it's equally the most difficult and that's okay. We're sort of programmed to think that if something's great, we shouldn't find it hard. And I think we need to sort of correct that a little bit. So that's, but yeah, it's all very new, but that, that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Which I know we've had a conversation before and I heard a little bit about your story, but I didn't know that transition from your wife having sepsis. And and, and you're right, it's, it's funny you say that. You are your wife's expert because you're trusting the experts, which are doctors or GPs, um, right, in these hospitals and they have expertise but you've known her 23 plus years and so you know hey something was off you had this gut sense and that was traumatic almost losing her and I I, I mean it sounds like the emotions you were going through is just ultimate fear and just being scared of like, I'm you said earlier I'm not ready thinking that she was gone I mean there was at what point did you sense that was it that she was out was she like what happened there that you felt I might have to say goodbye to my wife right now
1: the day they discharged her from hospital I said, "Please don't send her home." I said you probably don't hear this very often, but please don't send her home because she's not well. And I had I had my suspicions. I f- I thought it was some sort of infection. Um, I don't claim to be an expert. I'm ex-army, you know. I know a little bit about medical. Plus, with having seven kids, you've had to learn a lot of medical stuff. You know, we've been to the emergency <laughs> room a lot, Travis. I, I understand a-, a little bit. I've tried to educate myself a bit. My wife knows quite a lot about it. I knew. Something was wrong. They didn't really listen. I think that's where it starts because I thought I should have made them listen. You know, so when I was in that moment Mm. thinking that's it, you know, I should have tried harder. Maybe I should have shouted. Maybe I should have done something. I could sort of feel that strain. But what had happened is we brought her home. The reason I didn't want her coming home is I suspected that we were going to have to come back. That's more traumatic for everybody. I said, it's more traumatic for her, for the baby, for the kids at home. We've been home just, I think, under 24 hours. And I'd been on the phone to hospitals a lot, and I was getting the same sort of, not really taken very seriously. And in the end, I said, look, I'm bringing her in. You know, they kept sort of saying not to. And I said, I'm bringing her back in. So we took her back in. We had sort of a couple of junior doctors come and sort of check it. They wanted to do something. I won't go into too much detail, but they wanted to do something. I genuinely believed was going to put her life in danger. I didn't agree Mm -hmm. with it. This is one of the things I talk about sort of challenging if you have concerns. You know, we think we have to be led by the doctors. And you do have a thought, you know, if you're worried, if you have something that you think is wrong, you're within your rights to challenge it. And I don't think we know that enough. Services won't tell you that, really. But that, you know, you do have that. As long as, like I said, you're not aggressive, you're not rude. So I said, I didn't agree. I wanted sort of a, a senior opinion. By the time they'd got this sort of senior, my wife had took a real bad turn. Uh, like infection markers she wasn't breathing and she she was building up sort of fluid retention and when they sort of tried to lie her down to examine her she couldn't breathe because of the fluid that was building in her lungs and she wasn't really compass at all by this point you know i couldn't really get anything out of her she was sort of in and out of consciousness i don't normally go into this much detail so this is actually quite therapeutic travis and sort of in that moment somebody that's much more qualified than i am could tell me that looked Dreadful, but it maybe wasn't as bad as you thought it was. Although I think it was pretty bad. But this is one of the things that I say to lots of people, and there may be experts that listen to this and say, you know, that what I'm describing was perfectly normal. I didn't think it was, but you know, somebody could tell me that. But when I talk about the effects, particularly mental health, but sort of trauma, trauma is determined by the person that feels it, not by what other people think it should look like. And this is what we get wrong, I think, with birth quite a lot is we hear it here quite a lot, actually. It's that this sort of the end justifies the means because you've got this beautiful baby, however you got there is just supposed Mm. to go away. And as much as getting the baby is fantastic, you know, the the journey plays a big part. And so does the process of baby being brought into the world. And what looks to services like perfect, straightforward birth, might not be to the parents that go through it, you know, and this is the bit that Mm. my experience, I think, although it was extreme, it was what I thought that situation was, and it might not. Mm. And, And this is the bit that although I think it was obviously pretty serious and it was life and death in my eyes and they were very worried and there was a lot of people trying to do things it's what that meant to me so yeah in that moment I've just thought that's it you know how do I function without her you know and I have spoken to people that have maybe been in a similar situation it it, it is that I said earlier on that sort of survival you automatically go into Mm -hmm. survival and that is oh my god how am I gonna what am I gonna do and then later on in life you think i feel really guilty why was i thinking about me in that moment you know in that moment i should have been completely thinking about her but you know, i said your heads i mean i was already thinking how do i tell my kids mommy's not coming home you know mm. how do I tell my youngest that you know mm. how, how and when mommy died you know how do we have that conversation I was already I'd already gone there because you start to spiral yeah. you know when you're in panic you spiral and I think that that's I think it's I wouldn't say uncontrollable but I'd say it's very very difficult to control
0: so you're saying it's very difficult to control in that moment of you're spiraling you're in survive really survival mode you're facing with this ultimate fear of I might lose my spouse and you're you're mentally emotionally going to a place of how to explain to my kids and you're right you're in a panic you you go in a survival mode. And I don't know if it is selfish, Scott. I think it's just part of how we're wired when we're facing with these kind of very extreme panic, fear kind of triggering that kind of fight or flight response of you're seeing the possible end and you're already going because you are a dad and you have responsibility and you're starting to prepare mentally. And that sounds like your, that was your way of coping is trying to mentally begin to prepare, even though it hasn't happened, you mentally were already there to what do I do next? And how do I help my family move on? If that's the, if that's the case, thankfully in your story that your wife did turn and and how long did that take from that moment of, Hey, I might lose. She's going down. I'm panicking. I'm starting to think of my life is flashing and I'm, how do i prepare my kids like at what point like how much longer was it until she started to do better
1: in terms of going from critical which is where we were to all right she's not very well but she's going to be okay it was it was only about 12 hours but then it was it took about six months for her actually to get better and she actually developed sepsis a second time about yeah. 3 or 4 weeks later and we sort of had to take her back in the hospital for for more treatment then and mm. it was it, it, it was a rough six months and, and and what it was is she had from the sepsis there was sort of infections in and around the wound she just kept coming back you know and she kept these, I mean, she spent pretty much six months on antibiotics. I mean, it was rough, Travis. You know, but wow. I look at her sometimes, and I think that I don't think she understands how proud I am of you know what she's overcome. And, and it's not just that. You know, we, we have these conversations a lot. My wife doesn't take praise. She just wants. She doesn't. She's just mm-hmm. not. She's not built to receive praise. She really, really struggles. Like at the mm-hmm. moment, um when we met at college, we joined. We'd gone to college to join the police that was the plan we both wanted to be in the police and um, Sarah wanted to be traffic sort of highway patrol type stuff Um I wanted to be armed response because obviously know, not all police are armed in the UK so that was where I seen it going and then my head got turned and I, I went and joined the army Sarah and I got married at 18 and um, when I went off to join the army she never she never joined the police she sort of followed me around and then when I left the army we we came back where we live now is where my wife's from her family are Irish you know so so she's Irish but she this is where she grew up, and so we came back here yeah. when I left the army. I left the army with injuries, so yeah. she wanted to come, sort of nearer her mom, and that was here now. if I think for a bit of support, so that's where we settled. And then okay. kids and life and stuff, and she never, she never followed it. So she looked at different avenues of what she thought she wanted to do, and then about eighteen months ago, she said, "Scott, I'm, I'm going to join the police." And so, so when I, when I talked to lots of people, we have here, it's a, they're called special constables. So what they are, they're fully trained. Everything the same as a police officer, but they're part-time. They, so they go through the same sort of process, and she goes, oh, this is what this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. And then we'll see how it goes, and as mm-hmm. the kids grow, then we'll see where in terms of transferring to, to the full-time police. But she does lots of other things. She works with parents. I get all the sort of praise through Instagram for the for the posts and stuff. Sarah's a massive part of that, you know, the, the yeah. putting it all together, my Canva tiles and stuff, Sarah does all that, but she does a lot for organizations and charities everything around parents and mental health so trying to find that balance at the moment the part-time option was probably the most feasible so she's doing her training now and and the first day she she got her uniform so when she went back to the next day's training you know she's dressed and and i sort of talked to people that oh i can't do what i wanted to do now because i'm 25 or i can't go back to university now because i'm fairly you know think i'm too old to do what i want to do and i sit you know my wife won't thank me for this, but she's fairly nice. She's following a dream that she had 23 years ago. You know, it's never too late. And I just sort of look there wow. and I think it's when you tell her how proud, you know, like, for example, my youngest is nonverbal. He's only just over two. Mm. So a lot of people say that's not that uncommon, but we know it's because he has autism. Two of his brothers also have autism. So the sort of traits that they follow and he doesn't talk, he doesn't communicate. The only word he says is mum. It's the only word he can say. It's funny because we taught him sign language, and the rest of his brothers, the very basic, so they can communicate with him. Everybody picked it up. He picked it up very yeah. quick. And you do this like siren, which is police. And we sort of we, we mm. taught him that. So every time his mum goes to training, you know, he's, he stands at the door and he does this because oh. she goes off in her <laughs> police uniform, you know. So he, I mean, even he's proud. He's all because he, he he loves. He watches real-life detective shows, like fly-on-the-wall police programs. That's my youngest's favorite thing to watch. So now his wow. mom is one of them, you know? So oh. And he just sort of sit there and think that it was really bleak, you know? And, and I, I mm. tie this into mental health, even myself, you know, mm. the fact that what I'm doing now, the, the page, I get to talk to people like yourself about what happened, which helps me process it. You know, I get to work trying to have services that will engage better with the partner and looking at parents' mental health. So I've been able to turn a positive. And this is what... I'm nothing special, Travis. You know, this is a point I want to try and get across to people. When things seem really bad and I've been there, you know, I've I've been there where I thought, I'm not going to be here anymore. You know, I don't like going down too dark Mm -hmm. a route, but... You get to that point where if I just can't, I just can't feel like this anymore because it just didn't seem to improve. Obviously, my wife was the one that experienced it. She's the one that was critically ill. Now, look at what she's doing. But you still have bad days. And this is the thing that I sort of talk to people, you know. I had one yesterday, Travis. You know, I had a bad day yesterday where you just sort of feel that overwhelming, whether it's anxiety, whether it's just strain or stress or life, whatever it is. But when you talk about recovery, I've said this before and I've probably even said it to you, but recovery is from. Your lowest point for the rest of your life that's recovery mm-hmm. if you've experienced like mental ill health you know you've really struggled at really dark times i don't think that ever goes away i think you just sort of learn mm-hmm. how to manage it and we talk about time being a healer and i don't believe that either travis i think it's what you do in that time and what you learn over that time that helps you to process it and helps you to cope a little bit better if you didn't do anything the time wouldn't do it on its own so that, that this is sort mm-hmm. of what i try and say to people that yes over that time you will learn ways to help yourself cope but you're still going to experience bad times they will still come mm-hmm. and it's okay because it's just your body's way of telling you maybe you're doing too much yeah. maybe you're straining maybe you're under a little bit too much mm-hmm. pressure you know that's what it is especially when it's anxiety or if you're anxious, that's your body's way of saying, hang on, something's not right. You need to slow down. You need to listen to that, you know, and I think we're, we're sort of programmed to push past it and I think that's what we have to change. But we can start that by conversations like this. We can start that by checking in with your friends, you know, Are you all right, mate? Are you really all right? You know, is everything okay? Just checking in on them, especially right now with all the things we've been through with the pandemic. People are suffering on a different level now. And I think it's just we need to be more aware of that. We need to teach it in schools. We need to have it in the workplace. and We just need to normalize Mm -hmm. talking about the fact that we all find life difficult.
0: Do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a couple things, Scott, that just stand out to me. First, I mean, just you hit so many points, so spot on, and speaking from your experience. But a couple things that I would like to go back to and kind of just kind of focus on because I feel like these these are key moments. You know, the first one would be you talked about one trauma and. You mentioned it's really in the perspective of, of the individual, you know, like I'm thinking of the book, it's by Bessel van der Kolk, have you, but it's called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, it's a book on trauma, great book. And even Dan Siegel, um, he's a neurobi- yeah. neuropsychologist. He's done research as well, but they've talked about how really you could have 10 people experience a similar event. They may exhibit PTSD symptoms and some may not. Some may exhibit anxiety or depression symptoms, and some may not. That it really is dependent upon the individual and how the individual processes that particular event. And you kind of mentioned that that you you know you went through a tr- significant trauma uh, with your wife, almost losing her to sepsis, and and you uh, alluded to previous difficult births that were as traumatic. That you realized maybe after this most recent one with your with your most recent son of oh there was other events that happened that maybe I for whatever reason, wasn't aware of at the moment, or I just kept functioning as a dad or with life. And then after having the most recent with your latest son and and your wife really getting sick, you you, you weren't doing well, like you said, after she recovered, you came home and weren't doing well so at what point did that click of realizing hey I'm not doing too hot here and I'm really struggling and I need to kind of ask for help like at what was like the the impetus to change or was there like a light bulb moment or was there some awareness of oh yeah I need to I need to ask for some help here
1: it sort of it, it all sort of spills into one what I now know my first son is where this first sort of trauma started and it's one of the things that I, I try and talk about Quite a lot when I talk to services, I don't want to sit here and say that all maternity services are failing and all doctors are failing because that's not fair because there's some phenomenal work being done. What I'm concerned about is it's not sort of widespread enough. It's not across the board enough. And I never experienced the changes that I know are out there that you know, they didn't happen to me. And a lot of what I talk about I talk about it because I experienced it multiple times. You know, it's not just something that happened once. So. But it has improved in my 18 years of parenting the way that we sort of engage with families mental health starting to see the importance of two parents trying to promote it from within services is definitely starting to improve especially here in the UK and mm-hmm. mental health in general is definitely more talked about here which obviously makes it a little bit easier there's still a lot of barriers when it comes to talking about men's mental health or fathers being affected you know that that's not quite so well received but it's definitely getting better. But yeah, so my, my first son was born and I would go back to that maybe not overly traumatic in the professional's eyes. He had to be born by this Von Tuss sort of suction cap and it sort mm-hmm. of deformed his head. He had this sort of corner on his head. I remember looking at him thinking, oh, you know, this is going to, he's brain damaged. You know, this is going to affect him for the rest mm-hmm. of his life. And It wasn't obviously too much later on obviously it was a fairly traumatic birth because he was stuck that's why they had to help get him out so but it was this sort of lack loss of control i couldn't Mm -hmm. and i talked to so many dads about this and this isn't trying to take the focus away from mom that's something i always try and say you can't control the situation even if it goes perfectly well there's Mm -hmm. at a point they're in danger they're at risk you can't help them probably the worst feeling in the world and then you get this baby and the ecstasy kicks in but sometimes because of that journey you can't feel that ecstasy straight away. Because you're still trying to get over how you got there. And that's the bit that I think society isn't equipped to support, particularly in men, mm. that this can have that impact. So what technically happens and definitely happened to me is you just bury it because there's nowhere to mm. talk about it. So you don't talk yeah. about it. And if everybody are you okay, yeah, I'm fine. Um and you just sort of you override, you move on. You override and you move on. The more you mm. do that, there comes a point where it takes a toll. And you mm eventually and, and and i've seen this i think it was on an instagram post actually there was a lady that she helped um people with mental health but particularly the homeless and she was given an interview and she was talking and somebody said what do you do if somebody's really struggling and you're trying to get them help and they won't engage that they, they won't get the help you know what can you do because you have to hope that they fall further hmm. because until they hit rock bottom there's nothing you can do hmm. you know until they get to that point where they realize it and i think What I'm trying to say is that's what I went through. And my Mm -hmm. wife for ages had said something was wrong. And what sort of confuses my story is it goes back um, when I left the army, because I left the army very quickly because of injuries. I struggled with that adjustment from soldier Mm -hmm. to civilian. You know, I just couldn't quite make it and didn't know my place, didn't know my role, loss of identity, whatever it may be. I really found it hard and I I just didn't really think too much about it. And then something that I say to lots of parents is when I explain that, people say, I get that. I understand why that happens, Scott. You know, it must be really hard. People will nod. But if when you become a parent, that's exactly the Mm -hmm. same process, exactly the same process, Mm -hmm. But we don't talk about that, Mm -hmm. and anybody would frown at you, and you'd probably get a few not very nice comments if you said that. But you do lose your identity of what you were before. It's not there anymore. The parents that I talk to, um, I hear it all the time, that this it's not like it was before. It's never going to be like it was before before has gone this is better mm-hmm. but it's a change mm-hmm. and change is hard and takes time right. that's the bit that's the conversations that we need to have with people and say look you know this is it's mm-hmm. going to be better but it's not going to be like it was and the relationship is going to change and you're not going to sleep you're going to be crabbit you're going to argue probably be, and you never you might not have argued before but you're tired you're not mm-hmm. going to agree on everything parenting because you don't agree on everything in life and it's just right. explaining it to people mm-hmm. that we all go through that in some capacity and i say this all the time and mm-hmm. somebody will probably pull me up on it one day but anybody that says that they find parenting easy all of the time is doing it wrong (laughs) so when you when you listen to people you know and it's normally get it at the school gates you know when you drop off time everybody's painting this wonderful life that they have and their child does violin lessons and goes to drama club straight a's and you know the house is perfect and that's what they want you to see you know that's not necessarily the, the reality mm-hmm. but we believe it is you know so when, if you so they're either one is that they're doing parenting wrong and the other thing is that they're lying you know if they say that it's easy all of the time because it's not you know parenting is really difficult and I just don't think we have that conversation enough Travis because we don't want to scare people I think as antenatal education goes is what I hear a lot here when I say we need to talk about these things mm-hmm. we need to talk about the different types of births we need to talk about the fact that you might go to a neonatal unit because it's such a different experience Experienced, right. You know, the, the noises, the fact that it's very dark, it's a very intimidating place. I, Like I said, I'd had six children before I went there, and I wasn't prepared for it. And I thought mm. I was prepared for everything in and around maternity services. But it's not. And you yeah. can't pick your child up because they're in an incubator sometimes. So you don't get to have that. So you can't help them. There's nothing you can do. Mm. And I sit there, and I remember in the neonatal unit, you'd look around and some people will judge me for this. But you look at other people and you sort of draw a little bit of comfort from their situation seems worse than mine. And yet again, I know hmm. that probably is the sort of survival situation. Or I think in I think as human beings, we always sort of if, if we're struggling, we try and think, well, somebody's got it worse, you know, or hmm. I'm having a bad day, but he's having a worse day. I, I think we do that as humans and sort of standing in there thinking, oh my God, or well, you try to tell yourself that as bad as it is it could be worse and i think just yeah. having these conversations so you can't prepare people for everything that's going to happen you can't but you can just make them more aware that it doesn't always yeah. go like it does in the movies you know and i think that's the bit that we need to really start to address
0: yeah and I, and i could tell that you really have not only from your Instagram, but even talking to you more about it, just you have a real passion and heart to, especially in the UK, to help kind of build that conversation, to open the doors specifically within mental health and for fathers and for men and to to educate. Because you're right, even in the US, I mean, we kind of, I mean the birthing classes it's just kind of talks about the standard you know here's what you do and here's your plan and if it goes awry here's what's going to happen but not much detail you know it's just kind of here's the plan you have a baby you may have to have a cesarean or you know vaginal birth that's pretty much it and some classes go a little more detail on certain things we we took a a Bradley method class which is a a certain method for like natural birth and they go into a a little bit more detail in that one because it was just a longer class but even then you're right there's not a lot of education about or talking through some of these, well, what if you're in a neonatal, what happens? What kind of support do you need? And I'm even thinking of questions of, you know, the questions that would be more helpful for couples is not so much, what stroller do I need to get? or what diapers, what wipes we're going to use, which those are not that those aren't important because <laughs> they, you know, but the more important questions is how are we going to support each other with middle of the night wake ups? You know, what happens if we're tired, you know, when we're exhausted, like you were saying that we're, maybe we're having arguments now because we haven't slept in six months. How do we take breaks? How do we get support and rest in the midst of the kind of, I call it the cave, the six months cave that it's just kind of a, you're kind of in this space. And I think those are the questions that need to be more talked about and addressed within mental health and couples, because that's more. That's more reality than not reality, but it's not talked about, like you said. I think it's not talked about until you're in it. And a lot of couples then don't know what to do because they think maybe something's wrong with them or they're failing somehow or you know, they start to get stuck in that kind of isolative, you know, spiraling in the mind of anxiety. And and they're also sleep deprived. So they're kind of just blaming themselves. And, And I think you're absolutely right, Scott, that these are conversations that we need to have more of to help widen education and to normalize this so people don't feel so alone in it or blaming of self, but say, okay, this is actually something that occurs more often than not, that these instances and these moments are more common than we would like to think. And I remember the same thing when, real quick for me, me when when we started talking about our journey of getting pregnant uh, initially it felt like hey we're the only ones struggling getting pregnant it it could just you know that's just how we work as humans right we kind of get self-focused and we get sucked in our own little world in our box and think oh that's all we see and then you start to talk and realize oh actually there's a lot of people that have a similar story or journey or more difficult than ours it's just not really discussed in school education it's just like you get you know You get pregnant, you have a kid. There's not like, well, here's also some things that can happen. So it really is just education. So you're spot on, Scott. I think it's definitely something that we need to do more of. It sounds like in the UK, but also in the US. It's definitely we need more of these stories, more of guys sharing and normalizing that there are traumatic things that happen. And then what do we do next? How do we get help, you
1: know? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely. I agree with everything you just said, mate. One of the things that I try and talk to, you know, I do um, my hospital run that you said, that the antenatal. Programs and I went to them just about a year ago, maybe a little bit less, and said, Look, this is what happened to me. You know, this is my story. Went through the details and said, Look, I've got two choices. I can do nothing about this and I'm going to get bitter and I'm going to get angry. (laughs) Or we could try and do something so that this doesn't happen. I'm not naive enough to believe it's not going to happen again, but it doesn't happen as often. And they said, What could we do? And I said, The first thing is an antenatal class. You know, a dad's anti class by a dad talking about mm-hmm. what it's like to be a dad. You can run it with your education midwife, which we have here, that they do the classes. I can sit in, you know, I can facilitate, we could share it, I can give my view on it, whatever you want to do. Um, so that's what we sort of went down the path of. And we do talk about the things because I, I think it's very important that we do have these conversations because it, it's absolutely natural. If your partner is struggling, isn't happy or is finding time you're going to take a little bit of that, what have I done? That's just that's absolute first reaction. I've done it. You know, I've had this conversation with my wife because I've been both sides. I've experienced mental health, mm. like I said, and my wife's also, she had quite severe PTSD from one of our traumatic births. Mm. And we have a perinatal mental health team here that they support mental health in new moms. It's sort of going down the birthing person route. That will get the support and now they have to look at the partner and um, if the mom goes through this specialist service they have to now screen the dad or the partner for mental mm. health
0: and, that, and that's a new thing that's new yes, that's what we
1: call the long-term plan here with the nhs that's part of our long-term plan is that this has to be implemented wow. so they are starting to look at it the problem is that, that that covers your severe end it doesn't cover anywhere else and it also doesn't cover the what happens quite often with i would say maybe 30 percent of the parents that I've spoken to in the last six or seven months. Mum's okay, Travis. You know, I say mum because I've only ever dealt with mum and dad. You know, I've I've not had any other sort of family dynamics or the peer support and the counsel that I sort of offer people. I only get mums and dads. So 30% of them. Mum's not affected at all. But then what does happen, mum's trying to support dad. Now mum's impacted. Dad can't get any support. So the impact is worse on mum trying to support him. And then she is feeling that guilt. And um, like one of the mm. other sort of things that we, if we don't educate parents that these conversations have to start, you can talk about them before baby's born. You know, you can set rules. You know, one of the things I say is just, even if it's 15 minutes at the end of the day, have that time to check in, especially with a new mm. baby. You know, one cup of coffee. It's hard to find the time. You're not going to find time. Everyone says, have a date night. Jesus, we've still not, we've not had a date night in 18 years. So, <laughs> That just doesn't work, right? So just find that time, cup of coffee, glass of wine, whatever you're doing and just... Are you okay? Yeah. You know, blah, blah, blah. What was it like today? Especially if you're one of you are going out to work or you're working from home or you're trying to find that balance, just sort of find that time because you look at the, the relationship. Families that are brought down, for example, I'm not a marriage counsellor and not even going to try to be. A lot of them, I believe, could be saved by having this basic understanding of what that relationship is going to change. And the fact that if you look at, when I have spoke to dads in the past and I can mm-hmm. understand this sort of way of thinking, they don't want to have, sex with their partner because they don't want Mm -hmm. to go through that birth trauma again you know and Mm -hmm. that is something that could be overcome by conversations and by able but how do you have that conversation as a man that you're scared to do that you know but that's sort of things that comes up and that's quite common because they don't want their wife to be in risk again they don't want to go through that Mm -hmm. so and they might not have future children just because nobody had that conversation then that relationship could break down she thinks now i've had a baby he doesn't want to sleep me doesn't find me attractive anymore And that's not the case. Mm -hmm. But if we teach, Mm -hmm. give the tools that they can have these conversations, they're more likely to talk to each other. And when you ask me sort of what was my, my, there was a point, and it was during our seventh pregnancy. And this is why I was already sort of speaking to therapists. Number six Mm -hmm. had been horrific. And sort of at one point, they both almost weren't here. And it was really bad. And then it was Mm -hmm. like an emergency section. So that affected me before number seven. And that's Mm -hmm. where I think I struggled the most. Because this one had been that bad that, By the pregnancy of number seven, we were waiting to find out what went wrong. And we were pregnant 15 months later before anybody explained what went wrong with number six. So I was terrified for this whole seventh pregnancy that something bad was going to happen. And that's why I think I was so impacted when it did. Because I told myself for nine months, this is is bad. This is going to be really, really bad. And then he was born and he was okay. Sarah was okay. So I thought, okay, we made it. And then within 12 hours, she's on the downslide, And I thought, oh, my God, definitely going to lose her now. So mm-hmm. it was like a double whammy. But I was sat on the bed about seven months into the last pregnancy. And I'd been really struggling. I, Like I said, I'd started therapy. I was so anxious and depressed. It was frightening. I just could not get excited. I was so scared about this birth. And I'd been to the doctors, and they just sort of kept putting it down to men's. Depression, because of the fact that I had to leave the army, because I had chronic pain. I was just depressed. So we weren't addressing Mm -hmm. the root of the problem. We weren't addressing the cause. So i would had years of it not improving. And I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that it's not because of my injuries, and it's not because of the army, and it's not because of my traumatic births. What I'm trying to explain to people is mental health is all of it. From the day that you're born, some people say from the day you're conceived, you carry trauma and eventually, you know, you can't outrun who you are. So it is going to catch up with you at some point. And, that's obviously stuff that I wish I understood before. So you can have these conversations with parents. They understand. You know, when I talk to parents, this is the bit I get the most questions about. Because the how to pack a bag is important, but you're gonna figure it out. How to put a baby growing a nappy on. Well, you're gonna you're gonna figure it out anyway. You know, how to fit a car seat right. is important. And I joke about this, Travis, because when I brought my first son off, I had my wife and a midwife standing in the car park and I had no idea how to fit this car, but forty-five minutes, right, right? I could not fit this car seat. So by the time I got him in it and, I, and then I sat in the front of the car and Sarah's looked at me and says, you ready? I says, I can't drive with him in the car. You know, I can't drive him home. You know, I think I must have drove about 10 miles an hour all the way home because he's in the car. Hmm. And, you know, I thought these are just silly little things that we don't talk about. Hmm. But yeah, fit in a car seat is something that you should be taught. So I'm not saying you shouldn't. Safe sleeping. Safe sleeping. Ways to feed right, all this right, sort of stuff, right. but we do need to talk right. about the fact that you need to be able to yeah. talk to each other. Because seven months into that pregnancy, I was sat on my bed. My wife's come in because you know we, something's really wrong. You know, please talk to me. And because she was mm. pregnant, because I was worried about what had happened to her and the traumatic birth before. And um, obviously, I'm not stupid. My wife's Irish Catholic. We always wanted a big family. Seven is a lot. You know, it's a lot of response. It's a lot of toll to take on the body. So I was obviously worried about her, but tried to protect her. So didn't tell mm. her how worried I was about this pregnancy. Um, mm. And sort of made the mistake that I think everybody makes is they tell dads, you're just there to support mom. That's what we do. That's what we tell them. And it's so much more than that. But it's also the fact mm. that we need to teach parents that dad can support mom. Of course, But mum will support dad. It works both ways. We don't talk about it both ways. We just don't. I don't know why. And we do a disservice to mums. And we do a disservice to whoever that partner is. Because you support each Mm -hmm. other. It's the only way that it works. So by explaining this to them before baby comes, they will have the tools. Because you can't prepare for every situation. But they'll have the tools to navigate some of them. And yes, the relationship might break down. Because what we're not prepared for is... You don't know yourself as a parent. You've got no idea who that person is. When you become parents, things change. People change. You know, like I said, that Mm -hmm. that change in the dynamic. And and it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. I can't talk for everybody, but I really struggled with the fact that I said earlier on, I felt things had changed. And obviously they had. I didn't know how to have that conversation, Mm -hmm. didn't know who to talk to. But what I learned Mm -hmm. the hard way is she didn't love me any less than she did before. She may even love me Mm -hmm. a little bit more because we now have this baby. But her priorities have changed. That's all that happened. And in life, priorities change all the time. And you will realize that yourself. And I've been through it. People that maybe you were friends with or even sometimes family members. It is difficult. I know this. And I've struggled with it myself in the past. But you look at toxic relationships, you know, things that are bad for you as you sort of evolve as you change as your priorities change and maybe you start to see yourself as a bit of a priority you look at certain things in your life and think that's not good for me i need to change my priorities Mm -hmm. doesn't change who you are it's just how you see things at that time and my wife's priority became the baby and that's what happens but nobody told me that and it sounds very silly and Mm -hmm. some people said but when i talk to dads you see that light bulb yeah i know what you mean it is very difficult Mm -hmm. not every man is like this but from my point of view, right. I always looked at it that my wife went on a different level when she gave me children. You know, the pedestal mm. was even further just for mm. the fact that she'd done this for me. So my yeah. my priorities maybe hadn't overly changed, but some parents will say it the same way. You know, I see it that because of her, I have these children. So she's on top and then mm. the children come. Mm. Whereas in my mm. wife's eyes, and probably with lots of parents, but particularly maybe moms, it goes baby dad. Dad sometimes goes mm. mom baby obviously the dynamics are different and everybody's entitled to how they sort of prioritize things but in that moment i struggled to see why we've seen things differently why does she not see this right. the same way as me and if somebody had just taught me jesus scott everybody goes through that then it would have been okay you know because i'm thinking i shouldn't feel like this oh, i'm a terrible person for mm-hmm. thinking like this mm-hmm. when i speak to parents yeah that's what they still feel you know that's what's still sort of happening and that's unfortunate yeah. because i think society mm-hmm. every parent out there has a responsibility to educate the next generation of parents not just about yes. how wonderful it is and how well you did as mm-hmm. a parent and what university your kids ended up at. that's not helpful <laughs> you know the real things the real side of parenting and dealing with adolescents when they start giving you cheek you know dealing with a t- a, a- toddler that's starting to talk or is drawing all over the walls or wants to smear with poop you know let's talk to parents about how to sort of process those things when they start giving you cheek when they start going through puberty mm. when they start becoming fussy mm. eaters and they won't eat what you cook when they don't want to go to school let's talk about that because that's the information mm. that we could give people that's going to help them the most rather than telling them right. how easy you find it which makes them think that they're failing anymore Let's just have real conversations.
0: You're so beyond spot on, Scott. I mean, there's so many things I want to respond to. Sorry. <laughs> there's just a, I could it's talk like a I could waffle, mate. I'm
1: sorry.
0: I like the waffling. It's great because your, your waffling is, is spot is spot on. It's something that stood out to me that I'm hearing through kind of this, and I totally agree with you, says that what would solve a lot is, is people talking. And as a marriage and family therapist, what I do in, when I do couples therapy too is that, one of them, the big things that people don't do when they come to my office is they struggle with communicating and talking about not just communicating, but actually talking about what's really going on for them and having a dialogue to be vulnerable, to share because often there's fears. Well, if I, you know, like you said, if I share this, I'll be seen as weak, especially coming from men. Like, I don't want to talk about my feelings. I can't share this. I don't want to burden. These are common themes that I come across on a regular basis. And so you're right. I think a lot of this would be solved over a 10, a 5, 10, 15 minute cup of tea, coffee at night, checking in, especially with the new baby of, hey, how are you doing? How can I support you tomorrow? And and that's something that my wife and I have really worked hard at doing with our kids is checking in. And there's moments when we don't, you know, because when you're especially that newborn phase, you get time blurs, right? <laughs> time can blur. And it could be two weeks go by and, and you're just like, wow, it's been two. A month could go by and you're like, oh my gosh, it's been a month. But I always know, at least for, our, for me personally, to be a little vulnerable here on this is to say, hey, when I know, at least in that phase, when I find myself not checking in is when my patience has gone down or when my frustration is going up is oh I need to check in and share how I'm doing or check in how's my wife Anna doing how are you doing how can I support you how do we support each other you know how do I relieve you how do you relieve me and then having them even a five minute conversation at the end of the night is just how, how are you doing man that would solve I think a lot of that buildup right because I think what happens is there's this buildup of we don't talk and then it kind of the pressure just you get farther and farther in part until it's so far apart a couple that never argued or or rarely argued or had you know low conflict now they have a kid and it's like they don't even know each other anymore because it was just a slow separation you know of months and now years of just trying to do it on their own internally and not actually engaging their partner and having a conversation again I'm speaking about couples specifically not so much single parents because that's a whole other world that's a whole other stressor a whole other barrier but, and so I could definitely second what you said that I think a big issue is that lack of conversation yeah. thanks for joining and listening today please leave a comment and review the show dads are tough but not tough enough to do this fatherhood thing alone.